I have to get back at John and tell you about the first time I met John. John was down here in Pittsburgh, and I was teaching up at Virginia Seminary. And we, I was part of a thing called, I've forgotten what we called it then, Folk, Fellowship of Witness is what we finally called it. But anyway, we're just a little tiny group of guys discovering each other that we all believed in Jesus. Because we didn't know, I did not know one mature Anglican clergyman that believed the biblical gospel. Not one. So there were just a few of us, and we were kind of holding hands, you know, just, just thrilled to discover. We'd say, do you still believe he rose from the dead? That's three of us, you know. <laughs> so so John, John comes into the meeting. We're coming down here to Swickley, and it's, it's in his parish. He comes into the meeting, looks at us, and he says, well, he said, what are your plans for taking over the Episcopal Church? <laughs> we were just trying to hang on, you know. So life's never been the same since then. Just try to keep up with John. He started, helped start, indeed, the Episcopal, Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry was his baby. It was his idea. Young men were under his ministry wishing to become clergy, called by the Lord. John said, God does not put live chicks under dead hens. You have to know the state of the Episcopal Church's seminaries to understand that. He could not in good conscience commend these young men to the seminaries in the Episcopal Church. Indeed, it took me years to outgrow my education at seminary, really. So uh, by the grace of God, Trinity has flourished. John planted the seed and helped us along the way. And it's become quite an, it's, it's, un, it's exploding right now. And uh, we're just very thankful. Well, I, I know I don't have a huge length of time, so I'm going to try to stay within my time frame and, uh, and to stick with the subject. Um, a prosperous young Wall Street broker met and fell in love with a young actress of gentility and dignity. And he frequently escorted her around town. Before long, he wanted to marry her. But he was a rather selfish and cautious man. He said to himself, I have a growing fortune and my reputation to consider and to protect from a marriage scandal. So he decided to ask a private investigator to check out this actress, her background and present activities. In due time, the investigator made his report. The young actress was beyond reproach in every respect. She she was as wonderful in all the things as she appeared to be. There was, however, only one shadow that fell across her life. She was often seen about town, accompanied by a young broker of dubious business practice and principle. (laughs) Character shows. Character matters. It matters to God, and it makes a witness to the world. So I understand our topic tonight has to do with character. The fruit of the Spirit is found in Galatians 5.22, and in particular, the fruit of faithfulness. However, to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying to us, we need to get, see our text in its wider context, in its section in the letter, which is chapter 5, 13 to 25. And verse 13 states the theme of our passage. 
And it reads as thus. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh. That is our fallen human nature. In fact, the freedom in Christ is the theme of the whole of chapters 5 and 6. So let's take a look at uh, this faithfulness. Oh, I've got my pages all out of order. So if you'll just excuse me, I'll get it right. And then we'll go back and it's better to do this in the right order. Come on, there we go. Six should be after five. At least it used to be. Okay. Now, the freedom that the apostles wants to talk to us about, in in which context faithfulness, the Spirit's work of faithfulness takes place, rests on a foundation, which he lays out in chapters one to four, and that is the gospel of grace, on the total sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross, and our receiving that as a gift, pure and simple, received in faith, apart from any works on our part. On our justification by faith alone, from Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, and not to our own glory, in any sense. The Apostle Paul put it this way in chapter 2, verse 15. Paul speaking to St. Peter. We ourselves know that a person is not justified, that is declared right with God by God, is not justified by works of the law, But through faith in Christ Jesus, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So that the point is that the life that we live in Christ is not a means of our earning our salvation, but is rather an expression of that salvation, which is already ours by a gift received through repentant faith in Jesus Christ. So that brings us to the freedom we have in Christ, which is the setting for the spirits producing fruit in our character. And that's our section, and that's 5, 13 to 25. Let me just read it once. I won't do it all, a lot, but just one time. Galatians five thirteen to 25. For you were called to freedom, brothers, or brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that is our fallen human nature. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
Faithfulness. That's tonight's topic. Faithfulness. Uh, find back faith. Gentleness. Self-control against those who belong to Christ Jesus and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. That's our passage. That's the passage in which the fruit of the Spirit appears, and that fruit which is faithfulness. But what is this freedom that we have in Christ? There's, there's some very bad understandings about the Christian life, and they'll lead us astray, so we need to get it really straight. What is this freedom we have in Christ which, for which Christ sets us free and to which he calls us? It's both a freedom from and a freedom for. Both. One without the other gets you in great trouble. It's a freedom from trying to earn our right relationship with God by our good works and failing, as our experience makes utterly clear, and as so do the scriptures. No one, no one shall be justified by works of the law. Or Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Without being in Christ Jesus, it's condemnation. Freedom from condemnation, free from trying to earn our way to be right with God, is the gift that we're free from. Put in the language of sports, we're on the team. We don't have to play our way onto the team. We're already on the team. And in addition, we have a no-cut contract forever, for eternity. Our freedom in Christ is also stated positively in Romans 8. We are free for, free for love in the biblical sense. For I am persuaded there is nothing in all creation that shall be able to to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's nothing in all creation. I mean, we're in this forever. Or in John, nothing shall be able to take them out of my hands, says Jesus. Or... In terms of our living, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our freedom in Christ is first freedom from the failure of self-salvation by our works and all the anxiety and the failure that comes with it. And it's also a freedom for life in the Holy Spirit, life guided and shaped and enabled by the love of God. I'm reminded of a story about a woman. She was married to a man who turned out to be very legalistic, rather cold and unloving. And every morning he would get up and he'd lay out little post-its with things for her to do that day all over the place. And she would find them and then try to do them for him. And this went on for some time. It was practically driving her crazy. A lot of resentment, but there it was. And by the grace of God, he died one day. <laughs> and she, she met and fell in love with a 
perfectly wonderful man. And they had a great marriage. And one day she was cleaning around on the sofa and she found one of these post-its from the previous guy. And she thought to herself, you know, I do everything that he asked me to do in these post-its. Only now I do them because I love my husband. It wasn't that she did different things. It's that she had an entirely different reason for doing them and did it out of a fundamentally different basis, out of love. The love he gave her, the love she shared with him, and the joy of caring for one another. Now that's a parable, my brothers and sisters, of the Christian life. That's the freedom. The freedom that is given us in the spirit to grow in us. So there are two ways to go wrong in our Christian life. One is to fall back into attempting to earn our relationship to the Lord. And that's easy to have sneak up on you if you're not careful. Because in every other relationship, practically, we, we earn our way all the time. But not on this one. Christ is either your total Savior or he's not your Savior at all. He can't be a partial Savior. So you've got to put all your eggs in his basket. In the absolute sufficiency of his work on the cross for you. So that's one way is to fall back and to lose your freedom Paul was particularly worried about the Galatians because they were seeming to come back under a lot of Jewish regulations and he, he could see them slipping. And he cared about them. And he loved them. And he was worried about them. Like a parent for his child. And the other way of losing everything is to surrender our life to the lusts and desires of our fallen human nature. To say, well... I mean, I'm, I've got a no-cut contract. I can live any way I want. But that doesn't put you in neutral. It just puts you to want into your want into the kind of drives of the fallen nature that still remains within you. I am reminded of a seminary student. What happens when you're tied up in this diocese of Pittsburgh is that they need clergy to mentor the young students as they go through seminary. So uh, this one fellow called me and asked if I'd sort of be a mentor to him. At sciatica, I'll take it a little easy on myself. And he, uh, I said, sure. Yeah, I don't know why, but I did. I said, sure. So uh, we would get together, and I said, now, the first session, I said, I'll tell you what, we both need to have a rule of life. I'll come with my rule of life next time. You come with your rule of life. We'll compare notes. And then we'll find ways to kind of encourage each other and hold each other accountable. Oh, he said, I used to have a rule of life. Don't do it anymore. He said, it just made me feel guilty. And I said, and? (laughs) I mean, what's wrong with feeling guilty if you're guilty? That's actually a good thing to feel guilty if you're guilty. But he didn't see it that way. He wanted a conflict-free, easy way of living the Christian life with no guilt and no struggle. Just, just one, he'd just go along. No effort. Float. There are even certain theories about some, having some kind of a mystical experience and having all, all sin taken out of your life. 
Now, I always want to speak to the wife of whoever it is that had these experiences to see whether it really bears, bears close scrutiny. But uh, that's what he was looking for. But clearly in this text, the Apostle Paul says, no, no, he said there's a war between the desires of the fallen nature, which are not totally removed from us by any matter of means, and the new impulses of the Holy Spirit at work within us. And we're not, we, <clears throat> excuse me, we're not to leave the path of love which is sketched out before us. Well, actually the law sketches out the Ten Commandments. They're simply talking about ways to love God. But it so much matters in whether you're filling that out out of love for God or whether you're being you know, fearful that you're, you're earning something. So the Spirit is the way to lead us forward. So in the midst of this struggle is where the Spirit does his work. It's in the midst of this struggle. We will no doubt have plenty of opportunity to repent and ask the Lord for forgiveness. I notice in our worship services we have a time to confess our sins each week. and It doesn't seem to be without any purpose. Well, at least if you're, you're like me, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm able to, to find something to significantly say at that point. My only problem is it goes by so fast. If they just give me about a half hour, I could uh, do much better work. But the Spirit will guide us and will help us move in the Spirit and to serve one another in love. That's a new thing. That's a new freedom in Christ, which Christ gives us. So let me be very clear at this point. The Apostle Paul is saying a clear no to any view of the Christian life that says, I am free now. I've got security in Christ. I can just live any old way I I please and uh, just follow all the desires of my heart as if my heart itself were perfect. There's a no to that, a clear no to that. Indeed, there is a statement we are invited into a struggle and into a movement in which the Spirit gives us progress, bit by bit and day by day, eventually forming our character so that the fruit of the Spirit begins to shape us, not overnight and not perfectly, but by the power of God's grace and mercy. Freedom for a struggle. Freedom for growing and serving God and freeing for loving one another, serving one another, which is indeed, as Paul says, the fulfillment of the law. Like that lady who now loves her husband and finds resources to motivate her that weren't there before. Now that's to the specific fruit that we're supposed to address tonight. That's the context. Otherwise, you're not really getting what Paul's saying to us. It's an invitation to uh, a walk. And it's not just a Sunday stroll. It's a serious walk. Taking aim, listening, responding to the nudging and direction of the Holy Spirit, informed by the Scripture. Oh, microphone.
Oh, okay. You want to put try again? Sure, we'll try that again. Alright. So where did where did you where did I leave you? Have you heard everything? All right, we'll go on. Now, since we're made in the image of God and are being conformed by the Spirit of God to the Son of God, it's important for us to see that above all, faithfulness refers, first of all, to God himself. God is faithful. He is the model of faithfulness. He is faithful to himself, and he is faithful to us. He's reliable. In him, there is no shadow of turning. He keeps his word. He does not deny himself and contradict his character at any time. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Deuteronomy 7, 8. And did he not send his own son and sent him even unto death? Yes, and the death on the cross. God is faithful. Let all the world be a liar, but God be true, said St. Paul. And Jesus is faithful. He is faithful to the Father. He tells us he speaks only what the Father tells him to say, and he does only what the Father asks him to do. He is a faithful son. And in biblical days and in biblical language, a son is meant to be faithful to his father. That's what sons are for. In the end, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Nevertheless, Father, not what I will, but what you will. And the Lord Jesus is faithful to us. He's a faithful Savior and Lord. He tells us the truth. He does works of mercy and healing enables it in us, laying down his life for us. Greater love, he says, hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And in our case, he lays down his life even for his enemies. Now it's on God's faithfulness that we rely, to which we gladly respond and to which the Spirit of God conforms us. So let's take a brief look at the faithfulness that the Spirit is forming in us. First, our faithfulness to God. Our faithfulness to God is the anchor and source of our faithfulness to others. In the simplest sense, we are faithful to the Father and the Son when we seek to please Christ in all we do 24-7. It's not complicated. 24-7... Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God and to please Christ. To keep close to Christ, we make use of the gifts of the means of grace which he so graciously has given to us. By our faithfulness in a daily quiet time of biblical meditation and prayer, in sharing in small group Bible study and prayer groups, in participating in corporate worship on the Lord's Day, hearing the word preached and sung and sharing in the sacraments, by our praise and thanksgiving, by tithing, using our gifts in the local congregation, we honor the Lord and are faithful to him therein. And we draw our strength 
from him through these means of grace that spread themselves out in our lives through the whole range of our daily lives. The Holy Spirit uses these means of grace to empower us, to meet us, to be at work in us and with us. Now, my brothers and sisters, it's important to realize that the use of the the Lord's gift of the means of grace is not just a kind of nicety for the pious few. We're talking about the bread and butter, bread and butter of faithfulness to God and the faithfulness that waters and enables our faithfulness in the rest of our life. It's essential food for all of us as Christians. It's not for some little group. So our faithfulness to God. But our faithfulness to God is also expressed in our faithfulness to one another in love in daily life. We tend to use faithfulness in our common talk to to refer to people being faithful to their word and faithful in their obligations, whichever they might, whatever they accept. It could be in their work, it could be at home, whatever, in how they do what they commit themselves to do. So let's take one, this applies to the whole of our life, but we'll just take one example of each. Faithfulness to our word. Faithfulness in our word simply means that we mean what we say and say what we mean, being truthful in all things, at least all things that matter. Perhaps a little fudging might be in order if you don't like the new tie. You can always like the kindness that gave it to you, even if you can barely stand the tie itself. You don't just have to tell them you don't like the tie. Well, maybe you do, but I I don't think you do. Anyway, I'm talking about really serious things that matter. It seems to me, as I just was picking an example, one area that needs special attention in our Christian discipleship is taking seriously in this country and in the church what we promise in our marriage vows. I'm reminded of the well-known quote of Ruth Graham, who, when asked if she had ever thought of divorcing Billy Graham because he was away so often, she replied, well... Divorce? No, never. Murder? Yes. But divorce? Never. Now, why did, why did she put it that way? Because she knew what she had promised Billy and what he had promised her in God's name. Let me read what we promised each other in God's name in the Declaration of Consent and in the marriage vow when we got married, those of us that are married. And to simplify it, I'll just use my name. The women's promises are exactly the same, except the personal names and the words husband and wife. Declaration of consent. John, will you have this woman, Blanche, to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her? Comfort her, keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. And John, namely me, said, yes. Marriage vow. In the name of God. It's in his, in his, in agreement with his word, 
in agreement with his character, in agreement with his power at work in me. In the name of God, I, John, take you, Blanche, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. Now, I have to tell you that when, I, when we actually got married, I was, my memory is not great even then, and I forgot to, to say for, 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 uh, for rich or for poor, I said for better or for worse twice, and Blanche has never let me forget that. <laughs> <laughs> now, you will notice that this is not a conditional contract. There are no escape clauses. This is a lifelong exclusive commitment. Period. And because it is a lifelong exclusive commitment with no escape clauses, we are warned it is not to be entered into lightly and unadvisedly but seriously in the conviction of the Lord's leading. Now, my brothers and sisters, when the United States of America redefined marriage, not about letting, not the Mickey Mouse that's going on now, which is so far down the road, you can hardly believe it, but by allowing no-fault divorce, it changed the nature of marriage as it is seen in the state's eyes. From what? Christians understand marriage to be. It has moved it from being a lifelong commitment to a conditional contract to be held only as long as both partners are happy about that. That's a very different thing. A very different thing indeed. There's no necessity to work out differences then. It sees love more as a feeling and less as a commitment to cherish and to love each other. It's causing many of us in the church to wonder whether we should act on behalf of the state in marriage because the state means something different. On the other hand, we're loath to get, withdraw ourselves because we want to make an impact. So it's a, it's a difficult decision to make. But we do not understand marriage as a conditional contract. But that's what the culture teaches our kids, and that's what the culture teaches every day the members of our culture. How different is Christian marriage? Someone once said, Christian marriage is a bond in which two incompatible people attracted to each other learn how to live compatibly. We are sinners, are we not? We come in as sinners and it probably one of the greatest sanctifying influences of my life has been my wife, who keeps squaring me away. It's good to have a sense of humor, I might add, in marriage. Just the other day, I was telling Blanche, I said, you know, we're, we're now living in Sherwood Oaks, and sometimes people get a little gaga over there. And I said, you know, you know, sometimes when people go through a kind of dementia they get a personality reversal and terrible things. People that are perfectly wonderful all their life say these violent things and thoughts come pouring out. 
I said, boy, I certainly hope that doesn't happen to us when we get older. Blanche, Blanche, who was half asleep, raised up one eye and she said, it's already happened to you. <laughs> Whew, that's my wife. What I am suggesting, my brothers and sisters, is that the church needs to do a far better job of teaching what Christian marriage is. Holy matrimony is a far cry from what marriage has become in the popular mind. And by the time a young couple comes to the clergyman for marriage instruction, they are so shaped by the culture and so twitterpated with each other that they'll promise and say almost anything to get married. They can't really give it the kind of judicious, serious thought that it demands. Therefore, we need to start teaching about marriage while people are young, as well as modeling it ourselves. They need to, they need to have a counter effect to our culture. And if we don't address this, we will never have the impact in our marriages that we ought to have in our culture. If we're going to change the culture, one of the chief ways we'll do that is to have excellent marriages and homes. And we need to, we need to, we need to take this seriously and evidence by the Spirit's gift, faithfulness to our marriage vows. We need to keep our word by the grace of God. So let this congregation be a place where that is given full reign. Now you'll notice the promise is to love and cherish each other, not just to hang together in any old way or not just to avoid adultery, though exclusiveness is part of cherishing the other. I believe the Holy Spirit has a great stake in our marriages as part of our witness in our culture. And he will work the miracle of a new birth in our marriages as we together walk in the Spirit. Well, time's running out. Let me just file faithfulness as giving our work our best, but, but giving our best to our work, our obligations, by title. A reliable and faithful worker is one who gives it his all. He or she does his or her work with pride and as a service to others and to the glory of God. The New Testament picks up that theme time and again. This is the example of the Lord to us. He gave his all. We can do no less. And what a difference that makes in any setting. As the Spirit enables us, as John keeps saying, go for it. Go for it. In the Spirit. It's a witness that is greatly needed. I'm reminded of something Pope John XXIII said. Someone once asked John, John Paul the John, yeah, John the 23rd at the Second Vatican Council, 20, 23rd Vatican, 20, what was it, 20? What Vatican Council was it? Anyway, it's the Renewal Council. John, Pope John the 23rd asked him, how many people work in the Vatican? And he thought for a minute, and he said, about half. <laughs> about half. We can do a lot better as the Spirit shapes us 
and forms in us faithfulness, reliability, and a willingness to give it our all in our word and in fulfilling the obligations which the Lord leads us to undertake. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we might in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the power of the Holy Spirit and your word at work in us, we may ever bear witness to you, see the fruit of faithfulness in our character by your grace, and hold fast to the hope of everlasting life which you give us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.